Good morning. It's a fun entry after that story, huh? Um, I'm really grateful to be able to share on this sermon about the parable. It's something that I have been thinking about and mulling over for a long time, and so it's kind of a privilege to come and share and put to words what I've been thinking about. Um, What you might not know is that we have already been doing a deep dive on Luke chapter 19. And in fact, during Sean's paternity and during the sabbatical that he is taking, we've already shared from this passage three times. Last week, Mike, Mike, there you are, um, he shared about Zacchaeus. This is the beginning of chapter 19, the tax collector in the city of Jericho. He took us on a journey through the upside-down kingdom of Jesus' ministry, repairing relationships with marginalized folk. And both Andy and Celia have both mentioned Jesus' congruent triumphal entry into Jerusalem on a donkey, being hailed as the blessed peace-bringing king. So what is smack dab in the middle of these two stories is this parable. Um, And it's a doozy, let me tell you. So um, I I really feel it's ripe for a good sermon since we've talked all around it. I guess it's time to talk about it. Um, One of the reasons you can tell it's ripe for a good sermon is because all of Sean's commentaries and lectionaries say nothing about them. Um, They say nothing, zero. So I was going through his resources, I was like, well, shoot. Um, I had been thinking about this for a while before anyway, but I just thought that was hilarious. So theologians and historians are somewhat divided in their interpretation of what this parable means. Um, In my background, I grew up with the rendition that aligned Jesus with the nobleman and king. So in this cautionary tale, which I'm guessing a lot of you have heard too, um, the nobleman would reward the servants who put good use to his finances much like we are to faithfully steward what God gives us and actively put it to work. Those who are lazy would lose whatever ability they have and wouldn't be trusted with further responsibility. While, like a good Mennonite, I believe in stewardship and respecting what God has entrusted us with, I do have some concerns about the interpretation of this parable. It's a lot easier to read the Matthew version of this parable. It does, not have, it does not paint the ruler as cruel or as harsh. Um, I'm a little concerned with what we're learning about who Jesus is based on the nobleman in this story. So, yes, God trusts us, entrusts us with gifts. Yes, I agree. Um, God will hold us accountable. I can agree with that, too. Um, God's trust is transactional and punitive. It's getting a little dark and gray there. Um, and then God is portrayed as harsh and vengeful. Those are the, that's the line that I, I just have a hard time with. Um, Fifty men protest this harsh man from becoming king. Um, they say he's a harsh man and a hard man. And then this nobleman executes them at the end of the story. I don't see Jesus doing that necessarily. Like I said, Luke's version of the story is the harshest version in the gospel. Matthew focuses almost solely on the servants, excluding some of more of the harsher realities. But, and in fact, I, there are a lot of arguments out there that maybe both of these parables, though similar, are actually intending to mean different things. Um, so, but back, we're going to focus today on the Luke version. Um, so this harsh king took me off guard, and he made, and he made me curious. Is this really representational of Jesus? I'd heard the, in my version, it, the pound is what um, Liz just read, but in my version, they describe it as the minus. Um, 
I had heard this minus rendition of stewardship so frequently that I failed to look deeper. Um, it can be a tragic outcome of a lifelong familiarity with scriptures if we lose our sense of mystery in the writings and teachings of Jesus, if we're no longer surprised by scripture's audacity. Barbara Brown Taylor is one of my favorite theologians, and um, she talks about kind of this mentality of becoming over-familiar with scriptures, and she's talking in particular about this parable, or parables in general. She says, um, in reference to parables and um, she says, the problem with a really good parable is that it can become limp from too much handling, like the velveteen rabbit. It can lose its eyes, its whiskers, and a lot of its stuffing until it conforms to the arm of whoever picks it up. After a while, you hardly have to hold it anymore. You can just sling it over your wrist, with the head on one side, of your, on one side and the body on the other, trusting it to stay put while you go about your business. That's how you know you don't have a live parable anymore, capable of leaping from your arms and leading you out to where you did not mean to go. The first time I ran across a different perspective of this passage was when I was reading Richard Rohr's book on the Enneagram. It's a very millennial thing to do, okay. Um, though it wasn't focused on this passage, he, he just talked about this passage, and he offered an alternative interpretation of the cautionary explanation of this parable. He states that the nobleman earns enormous fortune through usury. According to the times of the Christian church, all the way up to the high middle age, this type of usury was considered godlessness and a failure to love one's neighbor. Usury and the taking of interest, again at that time, were viewed as sin. Thus the nobleman would be the bad guy in the story. While all the other slaves join in the game of profiteering, the last one will have nothing to do with the mechanisms of exploitation. So now, instead of criticizing the third servant, we can begin to look at the servant in a new light. This began my deep dive into this passage. And as we dive into it, I think we've got to consider at least two things. One, what is the purpose of parables? And two, the biblical context and perspectives. Though I utilized a couple different resources, my most helpful resource was William Herzog. He was the person everybody kept quoting in their sermons and in their papers, so I decided to purchase his book and see what all the hubbub was about. He's a New Testament professor and author of a book that focuses on the historical context of Jesus' parables. His focus in his book was to recapture what it was like for a Palestinian at the time of Jesus. According to him, parables were a form of social analysis as well as a form of theological reflection, so holding together of two things. As we all know, Jesus of Nazareth was an incredible teacher. His talent lay in his ability to make deep heavenly truths understandable to all kinds of people. Although Jesus worked with people from all kinds of social classes, for example, Zacchaeus the tax collector, which you talked about last week, Mike, um, most of his teachings was actually aimed at the common people of Israel, the shepherds, the fishermen, and the laborers. Most of those who heard Jesus were poorly educated, so it was necessary for Jesus to teach using simple words and ideas. So therefore, Jesus used a common teaching tool known as the parable. The English word parable, this is where I feel like Sean, comes from the Greek word <laughs> parable, which means to throw alongside. The word also is related to the word parallel, which is usually describing two similar things as they're laid side by side. So two things are thrown together alongside each other, and all of a sudden they're easier to compare and understand. The goal of a parable 
is to compare one thing to another, with one of the objects being an important spiritual lesson about the divine wisdom of God, and the other being an event from everyday life. So in order to understand and embrace the depth of these parables, we have to be in touch with the practice of everyday life in Jesus' audience. In other words, we have to understand the social, political, and economic conditions of Palestine, of ancient Palestine. So first off, we'll start with, this is like my history lesson of the day, I guess. We, we'll start off with the population at the time. So it's argued that about nine out of 10 people in Jesus's crowd were agrarian folks. That means that the majority of the folks in the crowd were, as we talked about, farmers, shepherds, fishermen, everyday laborers. Um, they, were, they were typically people of the land and many of them lacked the education and resources we have today. In regards to the financial profile of the city, Jericho catered to the rich and powerful during the time of Jesus. Homeless folks and outcasts often lined the roads in and out of towns because it was found to be a good place to encounter rich traders and the political elites. The ideology around money and wealth at the time carried great suspicion and skepticism. It's a little bit unlike what we have today. Bruce Molina in the New Testament world, Insights from Cultural Anthropology says, in traditional Mediterranean society, the ideal was stability and not self-advancement. Anyone trying to accumulate inordinate wealth imperiled the equilibrium of society and was thus understood to be dishonorable. Greed was widely believed to characterize the rich who extorted and defrauded other members of the community through lucrative trading, tax collecting, and lending money at interest. And in fact, usury was understood to be responsible for the destructive cycle of indebtedness and poverty. This was a society where the rich got richer due to taking advantage of poor folks. So you can imagine their cry for peace and justice. I think it's important to note here that we are not talking about money being evil. This is not a story of someone trying to run a successful business. I think the story we're focusing on here is about the abuse of power. Another element to understand about this parable and perhaps one of the most critical, is to talk about the reign of Archelaus. And in fact, the nobleman in this parable is most likely alluding to the story of Archelaus. He was one of Herod's great sons. So you remember Herod the Great? Um, he was the ruler when Jesus was born. So when Herod died, the Roman authorities divided the kingdom between his three sons. Archelaus was made ruler over uh, Judea and, Mer and Samaria, which is a region that included both Jericho and Jerusalem. When, while we uh, know of some of Herod the Great's brutality, hence all the fans of Bethlehem, um, Archelaus was even more sinister and feared, even before he came to power. So a faction of people went to protest and oppose Archelaus from becoming ruler much like mentioned in Luke 19.14. But his subjects hated him and sent a delegation after him to say, we don't want this man to be our king. So after he received his sovereignty, he comes home. He took revenge on those that opposed him and had them executed, as did the nobleman in verse 27. But those enemies of mine who did not want me to be king over them, bring them here and kill them in front of me. In Archelaus' rule, he had three palaces in the very city of Jericho, three of them. One of them was a winter palace, which was initially built by his father, Herod. 
but Archelaus spent the time to renovate and expand this palace to denote his clear love of luxury and power. His rule was so formidable that eventually the Pharisees and, Gra and Sadducees, who typically disagree, jointly asked for the removal of Archelaus, and this time the plea was granted. So even though Archelaus is now gone, the dynamics and fruit of his cruel reign remains. So fast forward after Archelaus is removed, 20 years later, Jesus is telling this parable. And it's argued that he's standing in front of that winter palace. This backdrop is likely to be uh, simulated with the symbolism of misuse of power. So with all of that in mind, we can now enter the parable of the Minas. The nobleman's ser ser uh, <laughs> servants are entrusted with very large amounts of money. We're talking about like two and a half years worth of salary for one purpose, to make money for the master. And in a relatively short amount of time, the master comes back to collect his investment. The first servant faithfully delivers his allotment. He has doubled his amount of money. The master enjoys this so much, he gives the servant 10 cities in order to make the nobleman even richer. The second servant is much like the first, except he didn't make quite as much and wasn't given quite as much power. The manner to which these servants raise money is already probably raising the eyebrows of the crowd in front of Jesus. I'm sure many of them have contributed, have contri contributed to these prosperous servants. The last servant pulls out a piece of cloth, opens it, and reveals no more and no less the very ten mina given to him. This third servant's action was not a result of laziness or bad business acumen, but rather a silent refusal to buy into a broken cycle of usury, a cycle many in Jesus' crowd fell victim to. He could have put the money in the bank to collect interest, but even at that time, the interest collected was believed to have been accrued unfairly. He could have also pulled a Robin Hood and stolen the money to give to the poor, but the servant uses this opportunity to call out the cruel nobleman. If Archelaus and the nobleman are indeed the same person, which I think is highly likely, this third servant is risking his life. This passive protest is not passive. Rather, it is a tool to accentuate the unjust nature of this cruel ruler. This risk is taken to protect the rights of others to earn a stable and secure life. He cries, you are a hard man. You take what you did not put in and you reap what you did not sow. So why is Jesus telling the crowd this parable? We know from the beginning of this parable that this crowd is hungry for a king to rule, hungry for him to rule immediately. This is what they have been waiting for. I believe Jesus was using this story to challenge their notion of what, what power really does. You think the kingdom of God is near, Jesus might have said, but what kind of kingdom is that to be? Such as the brutal reign of Archelaus? No. Jesus does not fill in the final chapter of Archelaus' story for his audience, but allows them to remember the tale for themselves as they look across to where the palace was situated. The kind of kingship exercised by the ruler who bled his people dry to build a luxurious edifice for his own glory. Was it not the polar opposite of the kingdom of God? It's not lost on me that Jesus would portray a servant as more aligned with the values of the kingdom of God as compared to a king. 
At the center of Jesus' spirituality is a heart for justice and service. It is not peripheral. It is not optional. I wrote about five different endings, interpretations, what nows. Um, and I think it's tempting to put a neat little bow after opening up the historical ramifications of this parable. But I don't, I don't think that's what I'm supposed to do. I'll tell you instead how it has affected me. In researching this sermon, I felt a constant spirit of confession, sorry, washing over me. I'm undone by how I assumed I knew what this parable was about, how I thought it was centered around the stewardship of my gifts and my talents, when really it has been about more than my own personal world and worth. It's not about my talents or ability to make a place in God's kingdom. It's about seeing my neighbor and recognizing God's love for them. In mulling this parable over, one last connection I can't help but go to is the story of Jesus on the beach with Peter, eating breakfast. Do you love me, Jesus asks. Of course, Peter somehow manages to say, feed my sheep, Jesus says. So to love Christ is to love what Christ loves, to protect it, to nurture it, to guide, to educate, to advocate for, to correct, to heal his sheep. Thank you.